0: Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of breakfasters for this week, the week ending Friday, the 15th of September. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9 a.m., broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the pod this week, you'll hear us hear about Nats newly discovered fridge and how that has changed her life, and we're joined by playwright and director of a new play, Congested, Rebecca Cook, in studio.
1: For Weird Science, Dr Jen filled us in on the positive impacts on the brain from Reading for Pleasure, and we spoke with author and co-editor of This Fresh Hell, Katia de Becerra.
2: The humble cauliflower elicits some unexpected heat and passion, and and comedian Lawrence Leong answers some contentious what the FAQs.
1: (laughs) Yahoo! It's Monday morning.
2: You're
0: pumped.
1: Yep, pumped. Back from a very quiet weekend, feeling very well rested. Mm. Yes, committed to a very quiet September.
0: Was why?
1: Because I have to write a fringe show. Oh. <laughs> writing a fringe show, so off the alcohol, mm. just healthy exercising. Writing. Great. Yeah, it was you great. Sound-
0: disappointed in yourself that you have committed to this
1: that was just new yeah look it's a little bit you go here we go second weekend down here we go no look I'm enjoying it it's nice Mm -hmm. I think it was it's funny though there's so many non-alcoholic beverages on offer Mm. that you just believe whatever's put in front of you my boyfriend bought me some non-alcoholic beers and then it wasn't until I was about halfway through so oh wait a minute No, they're not. Oh. (laughs) he's like they were just near the non-alcoholic section. Oh, just oh, (laughs) (laughs) but it's just so funny. There's that tastes like the real thing. Yeah, I was like, wow, I have not seen this one. But the the percentage wasn't anywhere. Anyway, I thought that was quite funny.
0: It is funny that they sell non-alcoholic beers in bottle shops. Yeah. So if you're if you're someone who is trying to avoid alcohol. Mm you have to, having to go into a bottle shop to buy your drink seems ridiculous. Like I get that because they're trying to make you – if you're doing it, you know, without any kind of stigma attached or just because you want a break from drinking or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, for that's... some people they'd find it really hard to just walk past aisles and aisles of stuff that they're not meant to be drinking. Mm. It's it's dumb.
2: I yeah. think it's dumb. Like chucking the butcher in the produce section. <laughs> yes. the, yeah. The Yeah, I suppose if you're catering – uh, you know, you don't want to go to a second place. And if the idea is to meld the two culturally, That's then good you don't too. want the apartheid, maybe.
0: Yeah, maybe just have it in. Although I have seen alcoholic beers in like regular supermarket shelves as well, so you can get them in both. But anyway.
2: I'm liking the sound of these alcoholic, non-alcoholic beers, but yes, I, I think they'll catch up. It's
1: kind <got> of <to> falls <laughs> into the same basket of like, did it happen in a dream, did it not? It's like... Does it really matter then? You're like, I think I'm drinking a beer, maybe I'm drinking a beer. So I just love the idea of going alcohol free all September while drinking beer the entire time, but just not knowing
0: (laughs) because
1: I don't feel that much better. No. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, very quiet weekend. It was nice, but it was kind of the first weekend that I wasn't like really moving because obviously the past two weeks it was like the big move, all of the furniture. Last weekend was still chasing bits and bobs. This weekend I did kind of complete a final piece of the puzzle though. I got a fridge.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I don't
1: know why I left that till last but I just was done with tasks. I just gave up.
0: How? So how did you manage two weeks without a uh, fridge? It's
1: easier than you think. Obviously I – don't have anyone else to look after a child right. or a pet, but I mean, it just.
0: Did you an esky?
1: You know, I'm just not doing seafood platters. Mm. No, there was no esky. I wasn't, you know, not too much dairy. Just buying small portions of dairy. Just eating very fresh, guys. Mm. A lot of rice crackers and avocado, yeah, fruit, bananas. It's like going camping. It does. It sounds like camping. Yes, yeah, lots of Yeah. <laughs> Um, muesli bars, wow. you know, a sleeping yeah. in a tent, just to add to it.
2: <laughs> did you clean the fridge cranny or nook? The yeah. the big area that I it goes in? I would call in. it
0: a nook rather than a cranny. Yeah,
2: you're right. It's class. It is nook. How do you? Yeah. I know, I'm silly.
1: <laughs> the, uh. I cleaned the nook, I did. But I kind of gotten. I, I am kind of. I'm really not wanting to. In this new place, I'm wanting to go more minimal. Because um. I definitely struggle. I have a lot of kind of useless knickknacks. Mm-hmm. And then I, I'll just go without a fridge. It's not a great system. I just really yeah. want
0: like. You've got babushka dolls on the shelves. Like, everywhere, yeah. everywhere.
1: Babushkas <laughs> everywhere. You know me, Mon. So I'm really not purchasing anything prematurely until I know exactly what I want. I really like it. Every decision has been considered. So at the moment, my like I have a couch and everything, mm. but I have just a little fold-out chair that was sitting in the, the fridge nook. Oh, that right. I'd pull out. And have my coffee in the kitchen. I was loving it. So oh. I don't know where to put the chair
0: now that I've got a fridge in the nook. Well, have you found? I have found. Really throwing things off. Inspecting houses um, a lot of the time. Like if it's if it's on if it's sort of furnished for display. Yep. There's no fridge. Mm. So often, if you inspect a place, they take the fridge out, and it looks so much roomier. Oh. And you go, oh, this kitchen's quite good. Oh, this open plan uh-huh. living dining. And then you go, wait a minute, there's no fridge here.
1: Or or you think it's something else. Oh, that's a lovely little.
0: Seating nook. I love that nook for the fold-out <laughs> I, chair. I never what, thought to put my chair there.
1: What a funny walk-in pantry. Yeah. No shelves. Seems <laughs> kind of shallow, but I like <laughs> it. I'd be devastated if that wasn't yeah, exactly. what it was.
2: I, I like to pull out my nook chair when I have a guest around <laughs> yeah. for <can> tuna.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm painting Soda a real dodgy. sad picture. But So now I've got the fridge and I'm struggling to adjust. I feel like it's in a new housemate in a way. Mm. I think it's too loud. There. Oh, I'm just going to go out and say it. Mm. How do you know if your fridge hums too much? I don't know whether I'm oversensitive to it because it's been such a peaceful two weeks I'm learning the new sounds of the neighbourhood. Mm. It is quieter than my previous neighbourhood. I
0: mm. uh,
1: Yeah, I got comfortable sitting in the chair in the nook and now there's this new thing in my space and it feels like a new housemate.
0: I think fridges are probably louder than most people imagine because that's, they're always on.
1: That's what people have told me mm. but I'm still suspicious. Has anyone
0: come over to your place with the fridge and... Yeah, they, they said it's fine. It's fine. But does it's it, all I
1: can hear.
2: Does it make noise when you plug it in? Is it like having a tantrum to begin with and then it leads into the new situation?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say a tantrum, but like, you know, that kind of kicks in. Mm. It's kind of brief and then it goes on and off, the hum. Yeah. And you just don't know when it's going to do it. Like this morning, it was quiet all night and then I was getting up, it stirred. Oh! <gasps> Don't go. Yeah, <laughs> that must be it. Yeah, I mean, there must be a way to measure it.
0: The decibels. The sound, I mean, yeah. yeah, get a decibel reader. Okay, but I don't know. I don't. I think it's. I think
2: it's. I think is it a second-hand fridge? Yeah, of yeah. course it's
1: second-hand
0: fridge. Yeah.
2: Look, I don't know. Plays, it's possible. Yeah? Uh, you know, I'm torn because yes, I think that we live with the hum all the time.
1: Always. Mm. Uh,
2: but yeah, maybe your hum is pronounced. Yeah. And it sounds like it's actually ticking over into a buzz.
0: Yes, yeah, it's wow. gone beyond hum.
1: This is good. I and needed to it hear that because I didn't know whether it was just in my mind and Keep I was it just mind, fixating it. Keep in mind, we haven't heard it. <laughs> we have no, no, but I trust, if any, I trust Daniel because everyone knows he knows fridges. <laughs> That's what he's known for. He's yeah. the fridge
0: guy. He knows about buzzes and hums and nooks and crannies. <laughs> and I
1: really appreciate how quick he was to go, uh-uh, no, something's up. He identified the buzz and you know what? I appreciate it. Mm.
2: So thank you. Well, you might just – the thing is sometimes if you don't nip a problem in the buds as soon as possible, mm. it just lingers forever. Yeah. So what
1: do you think I should do? Throw it out the window?
2: <laughs> Throw the fridge out the yeah, window. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and – or is it the ice coming to terms with, you well, know, d- it is it growing a little baby ice in the yeah. freezer component and that makes more no, – takes more energy?
1: haven't filled up the trace yet. No yeah. baby ice. Oh, but
2: the – you know, the like – like The freezer,
1: the cooling oh, it's mechanism. it's forming its shell.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, it could be.
1: Yeah, I feel like I need to give it a chance, like Mm. a new housemate.
0: I mean, I think you have to. You can't. You can't live fridgeless.
1: No. I mean, I could. I thought about it.
0: Well, see, you can rely on your neighbours. Just last night, my neighbours are moving out, which is devastating news because they're world-class neighbours and they're moving out tomorrow. But she was like, I had a stressful day looking after my kids. Mm. One of them vomited in a public place. It was very hard. She's like, I want to treat myself to a glass of wine, but we've already packed up our fridge. Can I borrow an ice cube? Mm. So I gave her a, gave her a whole tray. <laughs> so I thought maybe maybe you can get rid of your... I <laughs> knocked on the door and said, here, enjoy the ice. So here you it can, is. You can get rid of your fridge and constantly just ask your neighbours. Knock
1: neighbors. on the neighbours. I like these because I haven't met my neighbours yet.
0: Ah. haven't met
1: any. It's like a game of tiggy up and down the stairs. I can hear them but I can never quite get to them.
0: Well, next time maybe just ask them for some Cooling. So,
2: <laughs> A cooling agent. A
1: Do you have a cooling agent from a beverage that may or may not be alcoholic?
2: I certainly hope you return this ice cube on. Woo! <gasps> <laughs> 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 <sighs> That's right. Triple R. The North East Link Project, the twin three-lane tunnels, approximately 6.5 kilometres long, will once completed be the longest road tunnel in the state of Victoria and it's claimed it will slash travel times by up to 35 minutes and take 15,000 trucks off local roads. The project is also the inspiration of a new play congested by Banyule artist Rebecca Cook and to tell us about it the playwright joins us now. Rebecca, welcome to Breakfasters.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Now, the didn't I see the giant boring machine get unloaded this week?
3: <laughs> yeah, that's right. On Sunday night, I think it uh, headed our way through uh, Rosanna Road up to um, Watsonia, where it's going to start off.
2: Amazing. So that's 4,000 tonnes, 15.6 metre diameter. It's a tunnel boring machine and it's going to go from Port of Melbourne, as you say, with lane closions to uh, disruptions in Greensboro Road. But it's it's central to your theatre show. Tell us about it.
3: Sure. So uh, a couple of years ago when they announced the North East Link, uh, I was looking at one of the maps and thought, oh, my God, I think that's going to go under my house. Mm. Um, and the, the maps were not too clear. Uh, they, don't, they don't put uh, the street names on them. But uh, in, in further investigation, it did look like it was going to go under my house. And so uh, and, and still today, it's not clear if it is going under my house. Uh, but it, it, I started to think, oh my God, what if you know, what if I was at home and and, and a boring machine came up <laughs> through my lounge room floor? Uh, what what would I do? Um, and so the play is sort of based on that premise, uh, and it it's it, it's it's sort of set in a very dark sort of dark, not too distant future where uh, you know the state is so congested that there are, there, there are no ambulances uh, because they can't get through traffic in time, there are no p- uh, pr- um, physical schools, uh, there's, uh, you know, food can't get to shops, so there's just mainly tinned or powdered products. Uh, and so, you know, this real sense of being locked in um, without anywhere to go. Um, and the, the main character, the protagonist, uh, Mitzi, has the sort of unenviable job of being the infrastructure commissioner at this point in time and is is completing a, a report on what they should do to unclog the state uh, when this boring machine comes up through a lounge room floor, which sort of sets up a sort of delicious sort of ethical uh, dilemma for her because uh, in in the play they're called The Least East Link. Uh, the <laughs> Least East Link offer to leave the tunnel which would give her unimpeded access to variety of places in a much quicker time than anyone else in the state if she just keeps quiet about uh, <laughs> about the the, the tunneling and also ensures that her sort of recommendations are very pro car uh, so in the in the play she's a sort of le- previously left-leaning kind of um, a uh, person who you know is looking at maybe decriminalising cycling, which they you know are not uh, happy about, uh, and and is keen to bring back public transport. In the play, public transport is considered a myth or an old wives' tale, uh, and so she uh, she sort of set, sets up this dilemma where you know she really wants to do the right thing, uh, but you know she could she could get around a lot easier with this tunnel. Her husband. Uh, is is also um, works in the city, and he only comes home on the weekends because it's too hard to to travel the distance. They don't live that far from the city, but it's too uh, it's it's too long a journey. And uh, he also is quite invested in this because uh, he is the original um, creator of the cower, which is the in car shower. So for people <laughs> oh. who are commuting in. Uh, um, I like that. Yeah. (laughs) So I was trying to think about, you know, if if you're if you're spending a lot of time commuting, what what are the sort of products that might uh, become available to you in the in car shower uh is one of those i did unfortunately see someone sent me the other day an in-car toilet which uh, <laughs> which is, is a real thing apparently so uh for people traveling those long distances
1: i'm seeing some merch opportunities here <laughs> that could be biting
3: off more than. because you, you, you do
2: see traffic jams in places like indonesia or whatever it's like my god then they some of them go for days it mm. seems
3: yes yeah and that that's what i was sort of playing on and Um, I think during COVID, you you know, we all experienced that traffic was was really good. Like I suppose it's one of the few things that was great about that. Uh, but it seems to have come back with a real vengeance, um, particularly, w- which is quite strange, I think, because mm-hmm. a lot of people are, are working from home.
2: So, so w- what is the vibe like in Eltham and Watsonia and Rosanna and Viewbank and the Banyol residents who will be impacted? Are they getting behind your play?
3: Yeah, definitely. It's, so it's getting a lot of support. So opening night is already sold out. Uh, I've situated it quite purposely uh, within the sort of construction zone. I've measured it. It's, it's less than a kilometre from where really wow. the significant construction is going on um so probably as you arrive you'll you'll come through some construction to get there I've uh, also uh you'll you'll be greeted when you arrive at the show by some construction workers who are I don't know if this is going to be post-traumatic stress <laughs> for some people but they're gonna like stop and start you so that you uh have a difficult time getting into the theater it's immersive um, yeah <laughs> it's totally immersive uh, but yeah it's um it's it's been really popular and people seem to, it seems to really resonate, obviously, with people who have been impacted by the construction. But interestingly, you know, also, uh, you know, I'll go to one of my kids' basketball games and I'll be talking to someone and I'll realise that they actually work for the North East Link or mm. um, there's a, a lot of people, some of my actors, one of them, her partner works at the Northeast Link. There's There's a lot of connections within the local community to it. Um so yeah, it's certainly uh, it's certainly being supported by the community. Is there open
1: dialogues as well when you come across these people who are kind of working on the project and and
3: you're yeah, look, it's not a mean-spirited, it, it's satirical, it's, it's funny, it's not a mean-spirited uh, by any means, but uh, my, my husband did say to me, "Oh, what if, what if they offer you money to not put it on? You know, how much would we take? <laughs> so I am open to that. You're open
2: to sell out. <laughs> you know, we'll get your Venmo details. <laughs> uh, and, and what about the idea that it's, you've written a play that is very local and finite? What's that like as an artist?
3: it's um i i i think that it's yeah, you're right. I was thinking about it going, well, it's not going to age very well. The references are probably going to be very short. They want it
2: finished in yes. 2028. So <laughs> let's, fingers yeah, crossed for true. a blowout. Yeah,
3: that's <laughs> right. Uh, but, yeah, it is, it's, a very de- it's a very defined point in time and it's a, it's a very local issue. There are very local jokes in it about trying to get over the other side of Rosanna Road, which is the bugbear of mine or anyone who lives in that region will know that you just simply can't cross it. Um, and you you take all sorts of ways around it, uh, so it is very local, and I think that's what's appealing about it. People be able to it, people be able to see themselves in it. it it's not particularly highbrow. <laughs> uh, it, it 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 it's quite silly, and it, it's sort of um, it, it's. It's fine for children or people of any age. It it, it doesn't really have any sort of adult themes as such. I've got teenage children. I sort of thought I wanted to create something that they could enjoy as well. Mm.
2: Having seen the uh, cast photo, it's quite a big cast.
3: It is, yeah. So the idea, when I originally started writing it, and then, you know, whenever you write something, you don't want to be constrained by, how will I put this on? Uh, so when I started writing it, I thought, you know, what would be great is if the stage is congested as well as, the, as mm-hmm. well. So the, it, at points there are so many actors on stage they can't get round each other, and that, that was the concept I was going with. Uh, so that you know it would also so feel so busy as they're trying to get around each other. Uh, logistically, yeah, there are other things in it like quicksand and lava that are really hard to like. You go, oh my god, why did I do this? Yeah. What kind of budget did you got? Yeah. <laughs> I am available, to, you know. uh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's so there are a few interesting uh, logistical challenges in in um, staging something like this. Uh, but the cast are fantastic. We've actually got um, quite a few younger people from the area, so we've got 13 year old Henry who uh, lives not too. Far from the site uh, and uh, uh, some, some younger people and also some people who, as I said, you know, are, are connected to the project um, by their partners uh, and who are impacted by the project. So some people are living in Watsonia, etc. Uh, so So it's, it's quite a local kind of hmm. vibe. Uh, cool. Yeah.
2: Well, nor, uh, Rebecca Cook is who we've been speaking to, playwright and director of Congested New Play. It opens this Saturday, which is sold out, then Tuesday the 19th to the 23rd of September at Arden Crescent, Rosanna, Uniting Church Hall. Go to trybooking.com for more details. And I suppose good luck for – is it We Build Group? Is that the group that might pay you off?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm open to it. Okay.
2: Uh, Rebecca Cook, thanks very much.
3: Thank you.
4: Triple R.
2: Perpetual learner Dr Jen is here with Weird Science. Morning Jen.
5: Good morning. Hello. I thought we'd talk about books because I like books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. You guys like books? <laughs> yes.
2: Oh yeah, and one interesting reframe of books. People feel bad about buying books in when they have a stack they're not reading. Yeah. and the comparison was, well, do people who have lots of wine in their cellar say, "I have to drink all the wine before I get new oh. wine"?
0: That's, I like that. As someone who loves buying books yeah, and not reading do. them, <laughs> yeah. a friend
1: said to me just yesterday, "She's like, she loves buying the books yet yeah, because she's like wants to have a big book collection case one day." Yeah, it's beautiful to look at. People's books. Books are
5: just wonderful, Mm. I I think. (laughs) So, yeah, so what I want to talk about today is this idea of reading for pleasure um, and whether kids read for pleasure and whether, I mean, I don't know, do you think that's changing? I read for pleasure a huge amount Mm. as a child. I remember it being a. Weekly thing that we'd go to the library
0: uh,
1: mm. and
5: borrow a ton of books, and I, you know, an activity, uh, but much beloved activity in the household was just lying on the couch or on the bed reading. Mm. Um, my kids do less of that, not because they don't like books, but because they just do lots and lots of other things. Other things I don't know. Do. do you think kids are reading less than they used you'd,
0: to? You'd assume that they're reading less. Mm. I would assume that.
5: Yeah, more screen time.
2: Yeah. But book talk is huge. I, I, I'm not. Book talk? Yes. I'm not entirely pessimistic <laughs> about reading, but yeah, there are, there are lots of distractions. And grown ups are the primary perpetrators oh, of allowing yes. ourselves to be distracted. So,
1: oh,
5: a hundred percent. And I think about the fact that my kids don't see me spending that much time reading. I'm always deeply immersed in books, but I'm tending to listen to them as audio books. Right? Yeah, rather than reading them. That. Anyway, I just oh yeah. So the, the topic for today is really kind of reading as a superpower, and this amazing new paper that came out a couple of months ago that looked at whether. Uh, reading could actually be a way of tackling some of the negative impacts of poverty, which I just think is a really great thing to ask. So Let's think about kids. You know their bodies are growing. That's really obvious. But one of the things we probably think less about it is the fact that their brains are obviously growing all of the time. And we know that good brain health and good brain development is absolutely crucial. You know, if you're thinking about success later in life or, or well-being later in life, you know, good health, good mental health, good cognition, um, good results at school—all that stuff is obviously clearly linked to brain health and brain development. None of that makes you know is at all surprising. And it turns out that we know a lot between about the relationships between socioeconomic status you know whether kids are growing up with relative wealth or relative poverty and brain development so i didn't know much about this stuff i don't know how much you know about it but i did a bit of reading on it over the last few days and it turns out that we we know a huge amount so early childhood poverty of course we know is not good but we we know a lot of the facts so we know that if you grow up in um, poverty then you're going to have you're going to score lower on assessments of language you're going to have poorer school results Later in life, you're going to have poorer health, reduced earnings, lots of clear differences in brain structure and function, reduced working memory, um, challenges in kind of processing. If you think about sort of emotional and, and social cues, you know, more trouble processing them, which can lead to mental health challenges. Like it's kind of you, you think of it, you name it, and we have evidence that poverty leads to negative outcomes, mm. which I don't know, were you sort of aware of all of that? I guess I sort of knew it, but I didn't know that it had been... Um, as clearly evidenced as, as yeah, that, it's I not suppose. a huge
0: shock. Yeah, it? I
5: mean, it, it makes sense. The thing that I really didn't know about was that there's research to show that if you think of the cortex, which is the outer layer of your brain, there's research to show that um, people who grow up in higher socioeconomic situations have thicker that the brain's outer layer is both thicker and has a larger surface area. Wow. Which is pretty wild, Mm. right? So like actually really easily measurable changes in in your brain depending on the situation you're in when you grow up. Um, One really amazing study, they showed that when mothers who were living in low socioeconomic conditions were given monthly gifts of cash to help them with everything that life costs them, their children's brain health improved, like measurably improved. Wow mm-hmm. Which I think is pretty wild. Anyway, so we know a lot about the fact that if you're a child growing up in poverty, there are many, many impacts on you, what's happening in your brain, and that's going to have all of these flow-on effects later. And of course, there's lots of things going on. It could be, or we know it's probably partly poor nutrition. The stress, you know, stress has big impacts on our brains. If you if there's a lot of stress in the family about financial problems, um, you know, you may have less access to safe places to play. You're probably going to have less access to computers. You know, there's a lot, it's a complex, big issue, and I'm not pretending that, that, you know, we can fix it simply. But this great study that I want to talk about came out and basically said, what are some accessible and cheap ways that we could help kids to have better brain development if they're growing up in situations of poverty? Um, Could it be reading? And the answer is, you know, let's cut to the chase. Yes, Yes. it looks like kids spending time reading um, can have a really big positive impact. So big study. In the US, so this is US data, big study, it's called the Adolescent Brain and Cognitive Development Project. 10,000 kids involved, um, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, The kids in the study were aged 9 to 13 and heaps and heaps of data. We have heaps of information about them, including how many years have you spent reading for pleasure, and roughly, how many hours a week do you spend reading for pleasure? All sorts of cognitive assessments, brain scans—you name it—we know it about the kids in this study. Um, and there was a good selection. Like, so basically, half the kids started reading quite early for pleasure, and half the kids either didn't read at all or started reading later. So it's you know the the, the um, sample of kids was quite good for answering the question that the researchers were interested in. Um, and yeah, like I said, they found out that kids who spent time reading for pleasure in early childhood got much better scores on all sorts of assessments of kind of cognitive function, much better results at school, um, fewer mental health problems, you know, all the things that you would hope might happen. They found it. Mm. Isn't that just awesome? It
2: feels intuitively right. Mm. Yeah, I, agree. And yet I cannot uh, conjure up obvious reasons as to why, per se. So
5: so the thing to know is that what they showed is that regardless of socioeconomic status, these things happened. So we know that the, what's going on can kind of to some extent counteract some of those negative effects of poverty. What they found is that kids who read read for pleasure actually had larger surface areas in some of the areas of their brain that are connected to mental health, cognition, all the things. So, So it's suggesting that spending time reading which is about learning about language, learning about kind of social intelligence, all the parts of your brain, I guess, that get activated when you're reading, they actually change mm. mm-hmm. as a result of spending time in childhood reading, which is, as you say, intuitively you kind of go, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense, but, you know, this is, this is real. The yeah. data is there and it tells us that. And I guess the other thing to think about is, you know, there is going to be no simple way to change the impacts of poverty on children. The, the, the researchers aren't saying, oh, we fixed it. Yeah. <laughs> All we have to do is find books. You know, they're saying it's a multifaceted, complex, difficult problem, and it's going to take lots of different approaches to try and help. But maybe this is one thing that is relatively cheap, relatively accessible. Most kids hopefully can find somewhere safe to sit quietly and read. Mm. Um, this is one thing, and for those of us fortunate enough to have grown up or to be bringing up our own children in relative wealth, I guess it just shows that there are many, many benefits from our kids' reading in terms if, of their brains And developing. if a child
2: asks to be read to, you're on a good wicket.
5: Oh, 100%. And and I think, you know, so many people listening, whether it's your own children or, or friends' children or family members, will will think, you know, actually one of my favourite things to do is to read to kids. Like how great is it getting mm. to spend your time reading kids' books? It's one of my favourites. <laughs> yeah.
2: And I gather also, and this isn't related to your science that you're presenting, but the it's, you're inherently present. You have to... Yeah read and compute and express each word
1: yeah and you can't pick up your phone and get distracted Mm. (laughs) like we were talking about before would there be like a difference in like development like reading it yourself like the visual kind of reading of the words versus being read to yeah it's a really awesome
5: question and I couldn't actually get that out of the study I'm assuming that in the study it was the children reading themselves Mm -hmm. and getting that benefit but I don't know I'm I would like to think that having being read to also has at least some benefits and at least being read to gets you excited about the idea of the power of books to kind of transport you into a
0: different world. Before they can read themselves. Yeah. Being read to is
1: best they're some of my like best mem- like favorite memories mm. as a kid just kicking back in your bed and just getting James and the giant beach, <laughs> the beach <laughs> <that Jesus laughs> like how good And what it more as an adult
2: <laughs> yeah and not waiting for a holiday to read mm. as well yeah. if you can implement it in as a daily habit because as you say it's an absolute superpower and I think it helps you think with more clarity as well
5: yeah, and that's what this research would suggest, that, that reading can bring all sorts of relaxation and pleasure and joy and escapism, but actually it is changing our brains. I mean, I don't know how much it's changing adult brains, but certainly kids' brains. And, yeah, it helps you to think about the world differently. And it's
2: the opposite of passive. Yes. Mm. You cannot phone in reading. Yep, You're there and present. Yep. And you're right, it's a superpower.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah. 100%. It's so, more important for kids to have access to books as well. If we're talking about poverty, that's one of the main things, well, why libraries are so wonderful.
5: Absolutely. And, you know, any time you ever get the opportunity to donate to a fund that says they're trying to provide books for kids in rural or regional areas or whatever, you know, I just think that seems like a really powerful way to make a difference so that kids who don't otherwise, you know, if kids are, I mean, there's there's been research I've talked about before. of um, We know the, the impact of growing up in a household where there are books or where there aren't books and that's also a really powerful predictor of what happens. Later, and some kids don't grow up in households where there are, where there are books. That that's you know that's okay. But if they can get access to books at a library mm. or a school,
2: but how fun is that? The idea that you don't even have to read the books, just that you see them on the wall helps. Yeah, mm. absolutely. know they exist? Uh, yeah, I had a friend who grew up uh, and would read in the shower. That might be taking it too far. <laughs> One to hand out.
0: That's a hazard. So
2: has uh, it? So many books destroyed. <laughs> exactly.
5: Those poor books. <laughs> Dr. Jen,
2: thanks for the heartwarming update.
5: A pleasure. Let's go and read something, hey?
2: (laughs) Triple R. Katya De Becerra is an author of atmospheric horror whose novels include What the Woods Keep, Oasis, When Ghosts Call Us Home and They Watch From Below. And she's now co-editor of a new anthology, This Fresh Hell, which aims to reimagine and subvert horror tropes in unexpected ways. To tell us about the anthology, which features established emerging horror writers, the academic and exponent of spook, joins us now. Katya, welcome to Breakfasters.
4: Thank you so much for having me and thank you for featuring the book. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about it. What, what excites you about this? Well, I'm a big fan of horror. I write horror and I read a lot of horror. So I understand the genre and I love the genre. And I think it has a lot to uh, to give us in terms of subverting um, old uh, tropes and challenging um, some problematic um, uh, assumptions that were made. And I think horror is very famous for both um, kind of reinforcing these challenging tropes, but also uh, but also reinterpreting them and giving us kind of like a new look on uh, various problems of society, um, you know, racism, uh, classism, sexism, and I think horror is really great uh, draw, like a drive, a really good vehicle to explore these ideas and kind of um, allow a lot of voices to have their say, voices that have been, haven't been previously heard or maybe uh, marginalized in different ways. So that was kind of the idea for the anthology so when I approached my co-editor Narelle M Harris um, who is also a terrific writer and she has a lot of experience uh, editing very diverse groups of authors um, both in solo books and anthologies and I said how about we do an anthology that basically we create a list of tropes of horror and we invite authors that we love and respect and say pick a trope any trope and and sorry a trope might be say a haunted house um, trope could be a haunted house so it could be a very simple thing like um, think of like a high concept right something that people immediately understand and they say oh haunted house uh monster uh, various monsters that kind of exist across cultural context uh, but it could be something very complicated like a trope um could be uh, like kids in a cabin do something wrong or things go wrong or seance goes wrong uh, summoning the devil making a deal with the devil there's so many of them and you know these are just like from the western kind of cultural tradition but obviously other authors from different cultural contexts have different tropes that they can draw on so we made like a preliminary list of tropes and i had a look a lot of what what movie tropes are uh what other academics wrote about it what are they and we basically invited authors so we, we this was by invitation only um which we wanted like to invite people that we know will bring certain you know diversity different views to this and we said pick a trope from this list or have your own if you don't like any of this and write a story that challenges it in some way so if you think about how do haunted house uh, stories end Right? we always have a new family moves in and they're happy and then something's wrong with the house the house terrorizes them and then things go terribly usually badly because horror doesn't offer you happy endings horror can end in any kind of way so okay so how can you divert that how can you challenge that trope um, maybe it doesn't end badly maybe they become friends maybe you switch a perspective maybe the house tells a story like in my story I chose that trope mm-hmm. <laughs> so I actually told our authors you can pick any trope but not that one yeah, <laughs> I
0: feel like horror is... M- more commonly, or it is associated with film, and a vis- there's often a visual element to go with it. How does the experience of reading horror differ from watching this kind of movie?
4: That's a really good question. I have to say talking with my fellow authors, not all of them watch horror movies, and I feel like uh, a lot of the time when I say I write horror, I get a lot of different reactions. Some people say, oh yeah, I love horror. Some people say, oh, I don't like horror too much. I don't, I'm don't. i such a you know scaredy cat. I, I can't do this. And I think there is a difference between reading this, where you can make your own interpretation of what you read from the page uh, versus when the visual is kind of given to you and that's determined by someone else and that could be quite shocking so I feel like a lot of people who tell me they don't like horror maybe they don't like the visual gore aspect of it like Mm. I don't do gore I don't like gore i don't like violence if there is gratuitous violence in the film i will stop watching right i i watch the first few minutes of a film to kind of get a feel for it and then it's like okay they're doing something different this is cool or it's or more of the same old same thing so i'll move you know i'll move on mm. um so i feel like uh books allows um more, I guess, more interpretations of what it could be. Um, I think it's more of a more in the control of a reader as well. Um, and I feel like my books, I never go for extreme uh, gore. I like to leave things open to interpretation. So a lot of my novels will end in a way that maybe will annoy some readers or maybe they'll say, oh, no, it, I think it ended well. Mm. I, it'll haunt I, you for the rest <laughs> of your more, life. Or, yeah. <laughs> what were you thinking? That was awful. That yeah. was terrible. Terrible, everybody died. No, When you're (laughs) home alone
1: or down the coast in a holiday house. So would you say this could potentially be like a really great entry point for people who are not so familiar with the genre?
4: Absolutely. We actually try to kind of market it that way. Um, And I feel like this book is good for people who love and appreciate horror and have been reading it for some time, but also it's a really good entry point to those who maybe are not sure and they have some doubts or they consider themselves like, I, I get scared easily or like I know, you know, horror, watching horror movies can provoke anxiety episodes and like that's totally understandable, please don't do that to yourself, but I think there is enough there, um, there is no, there is, I guess I have a different threshold for horror too, I have to say, so it's very hard to scare me because <laughs> I've seen and, re- and read it all uh, maybe, but I think in this book it kind of goes more for quirky for philosophical for um, metaphysical and I don't think it has any extreme like off-putting Gore violence that people are scared of. So, yeah, great entry point for horror fans. I
2: mean, a lot of people, yeah, you can close your eyes as a horror movie progresses, but you can't close your eyes and keep reading. (laughs) How do horror readers... React to when they're scared. Do you ever shove the bookmark in prematurely and I'll come back to you
4: later? <laughs> it's very hard to scare me. I have to repeat it. So based on my experience, I think I got maybe scared a couple of times reading the book. Um, as a as a grown-up, as a kid, I got scared plenty. You know, I grew up on Stephen King and various books that were in the house. So obviously, like to me, The Shining was a terrifying book. Mm. And I think a lot of it is the suspense. You know, what is in, in there? What what is he going to see? How how scary it is. And I and I think a lot of it is also about how you interpret that uh, suspense. How, what comes after. That's what makes the book work, I think. Mm. Um, because of, often you read it like, oh, really? That was it? Like, that was the twist? <laughs> okay, okay. It's the twist that there is no twist. Um, but I think, yeah, in the book, um, I just keep reading, honestly. I just, I read it. I read it because I know a person wrote it. Uh, keep in mind that people make up horror stories even though they're often inspired by real life uh, often inspiration comes from anywhere and uh, sure it could be some real events behind the story but we do make that up writers make that up and I always keep that in mind that somebody like me wrote it Mm. (laughs) so that helps (laughs)
2: Uh, you wanted to be an Egyptologist have you mined that well
4: Uh, I wanted to be an Egyptologist but I there were no pathways into it at the time or I didn't understand what they were that I could just Get a degree in history and go from there. But anyway, now I know. But <laughs> I did. I did become an anthropologist, so I do have my undergrad and my PhD in cultural anthropology, mm. and I actually do work at a university. Mm. And I think it helps. I think it helps me see the world in a specific way because anthropology, cultural anthropology, is all about understanding different cultures, understand where people come from. You know, what is culture? How, how do we make meaning of the world? Um, what can we say by uh, talking to someone who is different than me? So it really helps. I think in writing my books. And does
2: horror have the same function in most cultures or Mm -hmm. do some people relate to horror in different ways?
4: That's such a great question. I think there are some excellent studies that people can actually look up and read about that. But I think there are some similar functions in terms of – like cautionary tales. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of discussion about writing horror books for kids, like middle grade horror, YA horror. You know, it's a very, very big uh, genre, like very big category, very popular. Kids love that stuff. Mm-hmm. And know, as a kid, I gravitated towards scary mm-hmm. things. And if you think about it, it's like interrogating our fears. What does scare you? And why does it scare you? And then let's take that out of the shadows and shine some light on it and show you Uh, what it is, uh, maybe explore your own fear and maybe that will help you not to be afraid next time. Yeah,
2: and literature makes you feel something, which is always great. Well, it
4: should, right? Good literature should make you feel something.
1: (laughs) I know with the genre like definitely in film it does seem like that horror is kind of having a moment, like it's evolving a bit. They're like kind of merging of genres of the horror a lot, specifically like um, I feel like there's been a lot of like dark comedies and stuff, horror. Mm-hmm. Is there anything kind of happening like that in the literature world that you're observing or yeah. I suppose this book's doing that, I guess, <laughs> subverting the tropes?
4: I think this book is definitely doing that and um, in different ways. Like, uh, like my story looked at the haunted house trope and – and I said, I said to myself, "What does haunted house think, right? Let's give a voice to the haunted house. Let tell a story and why it does what it does and how it chooses what to do. And I feel like, yes, a lot of horror revival happening in movies and I, like I said before, horror is a great um, opportunity it gives us a great opportunity to shift things around to zero in on a societal issue and um, explore it as, as a metaphor. So a lot of like contemporary horror movies like Get Out, mm-hmm. um, uh, Us, uh, uh, Candyman, like reinterpretation of Candyman like they explore racism, for example, and say, okay, who is the monster? How do how can we uh, use a metaphor to really drill down and show like the face of? Uh, of racism, let's say, in a contemporary society. And I think horror is really brave in doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think books are starting it's do, doing those things as well. And especially, after have to say, young adult horror has been really inventive, has been really brave in challenging a lot of these things, because a lot of new voices are being heard. Like Publishers are really doing, I think they're doing a better job in giving voices to previously marginalized authors. So we're getting to see a lot of um, people from diverse backgrounds, a lot of queer authors writing stories uh, that centre those experiences. Um, And I think it's really, really great to see. I think horror has a really great future. All right. Well, (laughs) This Fresh
2: Hell is the new anthology of horror stories. It's out via Clandestine Press and edited by Melbourne-based writers Narelle Harris and Katia De Becerra, who's joined us now. Katia, thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me. Melbourne's Own. Triple R. Mon, I
1: know you're a keen cook. Daniel, you love a charcuterie board. <laughs> How do you both feel about cauliflowers? I like it as a it. vegetable. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm into it. It's a recent um, introduction to Rudy's diet, my okay. baby. Okay. He likes it too.
1: How does Rudy have it? Uh, steamed.
0: Some yes, steamed and just munch on that. Lovely. Or uh, in a puree with some other things. Gorgeous. Yes. Um,
1: when does a puree become a soup?
0: Mm, with uh, stock, uh, I guess, in thank a bowl. You. Very quick to when you're that not up. a baby. <laughs> 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 Don't feed my babies. But Mum was like, oh, "I can't believe you're giving that baby cauliflower. Oh, the poor thing. because really? oh. <laughs> she hates it. So of course." We all must as well. But, no, it's great. It's great. I love cauliflower. Yeah. I love the brassicas. Love all of them. The
1: brassicas. Yeah. I think it's – okay, so – I thought in terms of its reputation, that was pretty well liked. Your mum's maybe unique Mum got
0: sick on it in pregnancy uh, and, and has never recovered. Okay. As in, she's recovered. <laughs> she's okay. But she's never been able to shake the feeling of, the, you know. Shake the kids. Lifelong she's never cauliflower, boys.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, this is actually a support group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Cauliflowers. All right, great.
0: There's enthusiasm.
1: Does it
2: need to be hot to be... Palatable, or does it doesn't matter?
0: Oh, I think it definitely I've, needs to be hot. I've had a cold in like a salad, like cooked and then cold. Or you can have it in, um, oh, okay, like like crudites. You can, or pickled. I mean, I'm really into it.
1: Okay, I didn't think about the pickled.
0: Because then you can have it cold. I definitely had it pickled and cold on like a. I like, that could be Daniel's bag if it's on some kind of board.
1: Okay, because I when you said cold, I immediately my mind raw. went to raw. Exactly. I I, yeah, no. raw. People eat it. Happily, I'd have a cold. Don't
0: people eat it raw? When the, instead of rice? That makes yeah, me sad. Could,
1: could, no, cauliflower, not raw but like mashed when it's been cooked and warm is can be um, a substitute for rice, cauliflower rice. It's okay. actually really delicious. All right. Put some butter, salt and Your pepper one through else that. else is
0: delicious? What? Rice.
1: Rice is also delicious. Different flavour profiles. You're you right. know, If you're looking to change it up as an option, um, well, cauliflower is at the top of my list I guess for cooking. Oh you like it? Yeah I really like it. It's a great alternative as well like out people do cauliflower steaks. Mm. They kind of season it. I feel like it's a really easy vegetable to infuse with flavour. It doesn't take much work. Mm. I think it's got a built-in nutty um, buttery taste from my I don't know unsophisticated palate that is
2: my assessment of the cauliflower.
0: Mm. Daniel, when I said that I give my baby pureed cauliflower, you said, yuck. Yeah, I, <laughs> okay. I think
2: cauliflower exposes me as a bit of a philistine and I think I'm a bit <laughs> of a peas in the pod with Mon's mum.
0: Yeah, well. Ah.
2: Where maybe just a bad experience. And I, n- normally your your palate evolves and you, you learn to love the things that you use to find grotesque. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm getting there with cauliflower. Ah. Getting there. Yep. But I'm not – I haven't arrived. Okay. And I don't know what the hell a cauliflower steak is but – it's such a big piece of it.
1: It's a big piece of cauliflower. It's just
0: like sliced, roasted. sliced thinly, mm. so it represents more of a, it's steak a cauliflower. It's a slab. Flour. It's
2: yeah, a slab. Yeah. That's
1: a fair look. That's it's fair. a slice.
2: It's a big slab.
1: Can you pinpoint where it started? This no way. Just no, these
2: things go way back. But it's it's also <laughs>
1: most definitely probably your mum's fault. No, well,
2: yeah, just... I mean, some households just don't prepare oh, vegetables that well. I mm. would say, given our age.
0: Most of us grew up with overcooked, mushy vegetables. Uh-huh. And it wasn't... I mean, I think my siblings... I always loved broccoli, but my siblings are both like... Didn't even know it's true colour until they started cooking for themselves and realised that it's meant to be green and not brown. Oh, there go.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's a listener who says cauliflower is broccoli's substandard cousin. Oh, wow. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think if I go to a restaurant I'm more inclined to order it because I'm so – You trust them. Yeah, I yeah. trust them as opposed to home preparation.
1: It's come a long way what people have done with seasonings for cauliflower. It's definitely maybe become a bit more in vogue. In the cooking, cooking world, mm-hmm. perhaps mm-hmm. bit of cumin, or Do you say cumin? Oh God, here we go. No, no cumin. Say cumin. Cumin. I don't know.
0: I could be wrong.
1: Yeah, I say cumin. Okay. What do you say? Cumin. Cumin. Wow. Yeah, Look at me new. out here on my own.
0: Someone's out because you know how I said that you can use cauliflower as rice, and I, yeah,
1: they said mm. someone you,
0: said you, you can get cauliflower pizza bases. Yes. Again, if you can't have gluten then like that obviously you need substitutes, that's fine. If you can. You're an idiot. Why wouldn't you just have a (laughs) dough? You're
1: an idiot. No, you're not an idiot. No, it's fine.
0: Diversity is good. I'm not, I don't want to yuck your yum. Yeah, (laughs)
1: give, give it a go. So they're making it themselves, I wonder. I wonder, binding the cauliflower would be quite tricky, I imagine.
0: Yeah, I'm sure there's all kinds. A of lot of flour, yeah. I'm
1: sure, people are doing. <laughs> I don't some... think
0: you're using flour to <laughs> bind a cauliflower pizza huh? base because the whole reason you're oh having cauliflower, yeah, it's a just different not the flour. L- a spell Spelt? Can they eat spelt? I think you'd be binding it.
2: I don't know. With egg, uh, egg.
0: Anyway, look, this is a whole
2: anyway. tune into to my <sighs> cooking channel. I'm still uh, triggered by. it. Do you want to come back to my place and yuck my yum? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: yuck my yum. <laughs> I but I had cauliflower. I was brainstorming different recipes for it because I have was quite excited. I'd landed on. I was just going to do a classic roast cauliflower, chickpeas, mm. and some cumin. Am I saying it right? Mm. Cumin, some other spices maybe. Um, because a friend has got a garden patch that they in a community garden, ah. and they're currently regional for work. And so I went past the garden on the weekend looking a little bit overrun and they had these two huge cauliflower heads coming out and I put in a text being like, been past your patch, looking lovely, looking I won't say overrun but maybe they're prescribing to like a self-seeding kind of natural gardening approach. Mm. I go, there's two cauliflowers, may I? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. So oh. I was like, I was so excited. You saw
0: an opportunity. I saw an
1: opportunity. And I good. thought, yeah, um, I'll look out for the patch. I can help with a bit of weeding. Yeah. Needed a bit of work. Returned yesterday to pick the cauliflowers. Both gone.
0: Can you Oh, so that? you didn't do it in the moment?
1: No, because I didn't have permission. Oh, you That would write. be stealing, Mon.
0: Well, we know that you love to steal. <laughs> Um, True. I thought you were like – When
1: appropriate big super I thought you were big there, super and
0: you said, seen a cauliflower, can I take it? And they said yes and then you went – and you took no, it. No,
1: so they initially said – we texted saying you've got two cauliflower heads, huge. Mm. I know you're regional, they need to be picked ASAP. They said, hold off, I want to give them another week.
0: Oh, and now they're gone.
1: No, and then we got a follow-up text going, actually, go for it, mm. pick them. They already looked like they were kind of going to seed – yeah and then we head back yesterday. nowhere to be seen. This is my
0: fear with community gardens. I've never used one, but I feel like that would happen all the time, right. Other people take your things. I mean it's a love they're lovely in general. I think I'm pro them, but wouldn't you always be a little bit worried that you'd you'd spend months? Growing something from seed and then finally it fruits, and you get, you know, one cauliflower in a whole patch, and then someone else takes it. I mean, I think. Does that's that happen? Should well, obviously it up? happens. I mean, a true. cauliflower <laughs> high has just happened. Yeah. You can't
2: let fall re- re- rule your life, Mon.
0: I can't. I know every morning I wake up in a sweat <laughs> and think, <laughs> what about? I've seen. <laughs> How am com- I going
2: to get screwed? <laughs> yeah.
0: I've seen that community garden at Victoria Park Station. It looks so beautiful. Uh, I've seen them around. And, the, and people going there and snipping off the capsicums. I don't know. If
1: that's the state of the world where your first thought about getting involved in a community garden you know is why? fear of being You know I have
0: – It's because I have things growing in my – I've got a, some veggie boxes at the front of my house, like behind – you know, in the front yard. Mm. And I have a little olive tree. Yeah. And uh, it had all these little baby – little new olives on it. Yeah. And this is a few months – this is just before I came back to work, so a few months ago. Mm. And um, – One of the guys who lives in the street, he's like in his 50s, lives with his elderly mother and he was walking with her and um, he said, oh, they were speaking in Greek to each other. I don't speak Greek. And then he said to me, oh, she's saying beautiful olives. I said, yeah, little baby ones are coming along Mm -hmm. and they're all there ready for the picking. He remarked upon them. Two days later, they're all gone. Oh. Every single olive, and I thought maybe it's possums, but then there's no pits, there's no debris. All my olives gone because they're in the you know you can just you can reach them very
2: easily. Hmm. So I'm skeptical for a reason. Well, they you know it's the natural world. It's totally Darwinian out there.
0: Yeah, I mean if it's dangling over the fence. No, you have to. It's mine. It's on my property. True, but true, I've got true. no proof. No, you've so got I, no, I proof. don't know. And I was like, when I they done? I've got a little dog. Wasn't? Wouldn't she have barked? But yeah, could have been when we weren't oh, home. Yeah. Did he was? Was it his? Maybe elderly? the dog
2: was aware of you know. It's like the Sherlock Holmes story, the dog that didn't bark. Oh, <gasps> no! She and now knows. Mom doesn't
1: sleep. She just stays up so, on her rocking chair <laughs> on the porch with the <laughs> shotgun.
2: <laughs> cauliflower is very polarizing. Just to do a quick yeah, roundup it's the Turkish delight of the vegetable world. Mm. Uh, cauliflower. Uh, Vomit emoji, driving to work listening to this, making me dry wretch, oh, okay? Oh, apologies.
1: Uh,
2: we've got – they do a massive cauliflower steak at The Standard in Fitzroy. Yes. And a mate of mine loved it. Excellent. I had dinner there the other night. And, yeah, I don't doubt that would be Fantastic. outstanding. Uh, th- then there's the idea that if you make a really successful, say, Oh,
0: He loves cauliflower.
2: Yes. Uh, then you're now regarded as a good cook. Ah,
1: this is fantastic news. Mm. I need to get on the cauliflower train. Bit of pomegranate as well. Yeah, I feel like know. can really elevate the dish and give the impression that you're a better cook than you are. Mm.
2: Yeah, okay. I think my thing is that cauliflowers look like brains. So mm. there's like a kind of the smugness there. Like look how big my brain is. <laughs> yeah. I'm huge. Eat my two hemispheres.
1: That's what I'm in it for. <laughs> so the big hemispheres. <laughs>
0: Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app.
2: Thanks so much for being here, means a lot. Lawrence Leong is a comedian, screenwriter and actor behind shows such as Lawrence Leong's Unbelievable, Choose Your Own Adventure, Maximum Choppage, plus a host of stand-up shows, including the award-winning Sucker and Lawrence Leung Learns to Breakdance. Now, the self-described sceptical wizard and investigative nerd reporter is back on our screens in the new ABC series What the FAQ and to tell us about it, the presently jet-lagged former <laughs> R contributor joins us now. Lawrence, welcome back to Breakfasters.
6: Yes, yes, it's great to be back. Um, I did remember I used to do a segment uh, regularly on Breakfast is called The Truth, uh, which is not a million miles away from this new TV show, What the FAQ. It's about, you know, fact seeking. Back then, I used to deep dive into topics each week, which was um, conspiracy theories hey. and really nutty, crazy things about Melbourne that we didn't know. And uh, yeah, many, many years later, I'm making, uh, well, I'm part of a team on this TV show, which is similar. We're fact-finding and going on missions to solve questions. Uh, The difference is that the questions are submitted by the TV viewers.
2: Mm. And the questions can't be easily solved either. It's not a quick Google search we're talking. Can you describe maybe what makes a thorny question?
6: Uh, It's not not necessarily thorny questions. It's any type of question. Mm. So they can be like simple questions like people have sent us things like, why does the fridge have only one light? Why doesn't the freezer have a light? Uh, You know, stuff that you could kind of figure out. So we didn't really want those types of questions. Uh, But like you said, we didn't want something where you could just Google it. Everything's on the first page. Uh, We would look for things where the question was super interesting or super funny or just something which was a real sort of head-scratcher. So they could be like big questions about the universe and life and existence, or they could be like simple questions about your everyday life that are really pressing. I can give you some examples of of the ones we got submitted at the start of this year, and then we whittled them down to the ones that we loved and made uh, episodes about them. We had um, uh, coming up on this week on Wednesday is uh, why can't robots check the box that says I'm not a robot? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Lou Wall, who's a fantastic Melbourne comedian, is going to take on that question. Uh, What is the least edible food you can still eat? Um, Comedian Cameron James, uh, he he ate a whole bunch of things for our show and he put his body on the line for science eating. I think he he tried a Carolina Reaper. Oh, Oh, the chilli. Yeah, the chilli, which is apparently the hottest chilli on the planet. But that's not the only disgusting thing he ate for our show. It's up there next to... Like capsicum spray, isn't it? That the cops use. Yeah, yeah. I think it's actually either graded above it or below it, Mm. but either way, you don't want it in your bolognese. (laughs) Um, I did one recently which was uh, can you actually lift a car to save a baby? Mm. Um, And I did an experiment to see if I could. Uh, not using real babies, of course. Yeah. Uh, I was using my own baby, which was a, a, a comic book from my collection, which was very very valuable. And we set up this uh, bizarre test inside the studio where a car would almost run it over. Um, but yeah, I got trained up by Australia's uh, winner of the Australia's Strongest Man competition oh. um, to see if I could suddenly release a burst of energy or strength. Um, and, and it They found out science says that it it is true. You can lift up cars just a little bit because uh, our bodies have a reserve of strength, which is hidden away uh, from our conscious thought because it's to protect our bodies,
2: Oh, wow. Is it hysterical strength?
6: Yes, that's right. It's called hysterical strength. Um, there's nothing hysterical about it um, <laughs> other than uh, if you're in a situation of danger uh, or high peril, um, your body does release all sorts of wow. adrenaline and, and puts you into a hyper mode. And your muscles can release an extra reserve of energy, which it couldn't in the past because you're not supposed to use too much of your muscles. Otherwise, they'll tear themselves from their tendons.
1: Um, uh, but that was going to be my next question. of like, But you can only access it when there's a baby or, or a car involved. Yeah, <laughs>
6: yeah. Or so, yeah. So the experts we spoke to, we said, well, how do we design an experiment like this? And they just said, well... It's highly unethical, (laughs) so which is why I had to find something that I cared about a lot, which was um, my uh, 1939 issue of Mr Mighty, a comic book. And, uh, yeah, it was on a conveyor belt towards a shredder (gasps) and the only way to stop it was to um, lift up the car which would release a rope. It was kind of like a Rube Goldberg machine and this uh, sack would fall down, stopping the path of my comic going <laughs> to the shredder. So, yeah, it was pretty tense but on the day do when But you put your... Y- you traditionally just do put
2: yourself on the line in almost everything you do. Is that fair to say? You, you don't really have an off switch. You push the limits of your own capability. I think
6: I think it comes from what would you like to see as an audience member. So, I mean, the stakes are good for television. But more to the point, I kind of... I can dissociate myself. Like I know Lawrence, the performer or presenter, um, really hates Lawrence, the writer, (laughs) Mm. because Lawrence, the writer, is like, oh, what should – how should I solve this problem or how can I answer this question in an experiment which is, you know, fun and also, you know, gives the science in a way which is entertaining. And often it does involve either danger or or just audacity Mm. (laughs) And then on the day of shooting, I'm like, "Who wrote this shit? <laughs> I hate. This. Oh, it was me. It's um,
2: With your time spent debunking uh, things and your ability with magic, do you have you developed a philosophy around uh, things or canards that people hold dear, and your approach to debunking truths, which some people can find confronting? Oh,
6: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good question. Um, I guess the thing is that it depends on what I'm debunking. Like I've done shows on, in the past, like uh, there's a series I did called Unbelievable, which was a documentary series on ABC where I tried to explain the unexplainable using, you know, science and scientific methods and critical thinking. And I did an episode all about psychics. Now, you know, that seems to be like low hanging fruit for some people to, to pick on and, you know, Reading horoscopes for some people gives them a lot of uh, solace or it gives them a good feeling, but a lot of people don't 100% believe it, but they like the feeling it gives them. And other people, it, it is their life. They they prefer to listen to psychics to give them guidance in their lives. Um, but then on the other end of the scale, there are people who claim to talk to the dead and... and and communicate to your dead grandmother, and that kind of stops the grieving process. And in the worst case scenario, if these people are frauds, then it's really unethical and bad. So there's many different levels and layers to this to, the, to answer this question. Where I don't debunk things to be a naysayer. I. Debunk bunk things because I'm searching for the truth. If anything, I do want there to be psychic powers because I want to be a superhero. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh,
2: have you ever busted up friendships or anything because you're of a, a dog with a bone attitude towards harsh reality?
6: Uh, I think I've kind of uh, calmed down a bit about that. I think yeah. um, a younger version of myself was very much a, oh, I'm a critical thinking sceptic, mm. oh, blah, 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 blah. But nowadays I like to listen more. For me, it's more fascinating to understand why people believe in crazy things than it is to try to answer what is crazy and what isn't crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, what's more interesting is the, the human side and the psychology behind why mm. people believe in weird things.
2: And the questions that come through, uh, they're pretty clever, aren't they? Oh, the ones for
6: what the FAQ? Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah um, As in they're, they're hitting a sweet spot where there are some curious Australians... And you have the capacity to really look into it. Some of them aren't easy.
6: Yeah, yeah, well, um, some of them are quite contentious. Like uh, last week's episode, Cameron James did one which was investigating do dogs actually love us? <laughs> do they love us back? Yeah. And so he interviewed this uh, dog expert and it was really quite controversial because he was saying that dogs... Don't actually love us back. In fact, you know, like why when we open up the door and the dog puts its paws on us, it's actually disrespecting us, and um. it's just using us as a as a giver of food. And uh, yeah, of course we open up the lines for more questions. And this week there were so many complaint emails from dog lovers <laughs> asking why did you put that guy on air? This. This is not true. My dog loves me. Oh, yes,
2: uh, truth hurts. It does, it hurts. Uh, and of course, not to dwell on it as well. But the the you know cooking with gas that's yeah it's these are comedians and comedy writers who aren't afraid to maybe push the prejudices of the audience if necessary.
6: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean the the interesting thing about the questions like cooking with gas. It's become a politically loaded question. You know, people uh, on different sides of politics are using it in the culture wars about climate change, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, we had to sort through the science to try to answer the question. And we took a, a very good approach where we were looking at the evidence, evidence-based studies and we found it kind of lied in, lied in the, in the centre. It's cooking with gas is is a little bit unhealthy, but it's not as unhealthy as a lot of people are saying. But on the other hand, it does give off a lot of carbon. Mm. So (laughs) it's unhealthy perhaps in the greater, longer term. Yeah,
2: And then the degree of difficulty of making all of that funny. (laughs)
6: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, fortunately for that particular episode, a uh, question, um, Kirsten Drysdale managed to find this 1980s uh, educational rap song promoted by the gas industry in the US. And it was the dorkiest rap song, like cooking with gas is cool. And, uh, yeah, we managed to make that the backbone of the episode.
1: And it's still in my head now. (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
2: So uh, it's uh, what the FAQ is on, what, Wednesday nights, 9pm? And, of course, it's on iview. That's correct. But you're not finished making
6: it, are you? No, no. I mean, the thing is, is that uh, not all the episodes are locked off yet. And we want the show to be very reactionary in in the sense that uh, as the show goes to air, we still have the email up. And people can contact us via social media as well, because we are seeking questions from yeah. viewers, uh, the Australian public, and even Triple R listeners. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, please, if anyone has any pressing question about anything at all, um, yeah, send it to us, pitch it to me, and uh, I'll send it through. And hopefully, we'll get your question up on TV and, more importantly, have the correct answer for you. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> uh, how exciting! It's What the FAQ. Am I pronouncing that correctly?
6: Yeah, people have been saying What the FAQ <laughs> uh, which yeah. is perfectly acceptable as well. But What the FAQ is the actual uh, way we pronounce it. Beautiful. Lawrence Leung, great to have you back in studio. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app.
0: Thanks for listening to a podcast of the Best Bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.